Some of you probably braved the crowd this weekend to go down to Barbecue on the River. Some of you probably did. You thought, hey, I'm going to go down there and, pray and pay $45 for a chicken leg. Uh, you probably said, I'm going to go down there and see what's going on. I'm going to do this that. But I'm not going to lie to you. It's been like three years probably uh, since me and Emily have went down there. Because every time we go down there, there's always a fight that breaks out. Uh, there's always somebody we don't want to see we end up seeing. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and at the end of the day, it always is a lot more than we planned on having. Because there's always arguments, always arguments, somebody arguing about this, haggling about that, uh, fights break out every year it seems down there on the river, and it's amazing how if you get two people in the same room, there's going to be an argument. You ever been married, amen? Uh, if you get just two people in the same room, no matter how much they are alike, you give it enough time, there is going to be an argument. There's a classic book called When Sinners Say I Do, because if you're married in here today and you're thinking, we don't ever argue, then somebody has been storing it up. Somebody's been storing up, because it's going to come out, brother. I'm telling you right now, you might be like, well, she's just passive, and she doesn't ever say anything. You just wait. Uh, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, we argue about a lot of things. Can you fathom for a minute the situation whenever they come down the mountain of transfiguration? That's where we're at right now in the story, right? They literally, Peter, James, and John have been on the mountain with the Lord himself, right? They saw Jesus transform before their eyes, the text said, where his clothes were whiter than any bleach on the earth could ever bleach. And it seems like he comes down and we forget that while the three of them were on top of the mountain, the nine of them were down at the bottom of the mountain. And not only were the nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain, but they were having a debate about who was going to be able to heal this demon-possessed boy and what was really going on. And Jesus walks down from this mountaintop experience, Peter, James, and John with them, and he walks into pretty much just chaos. Just chaos. Did you see what the text says? The text really grabs our attention because this was, he came down and he saw a great crowd. So this is a big, massive crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. You talk about family feud, right? I mean, they're literally arguing back and forth. We don't know what they're really saying, but we do know that the Bible uses very strong language to say they are arguing. They're not debating. They're not having a casual conversation. You can almost picture they're yelling, they're screaming, they're having an out because guess what? There's a situation that is going on. And then he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son to you. Look at that language there in verse number 17. I brought my son to you, and he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able. It's an amazing thing to think about how at the end of the day, we come to church events. We come to almost any event you can fathom with expectations. I promise you that for maybe some of you, your expectation you came here is, I get to drop my kids off for an hour and not be interrupted. Praise God, right? You probably thought that was your expectation. Maybe some of you, your expectations was, I heard Jerry is slapping the bass. Uh, and I cannot wait to come to church to hear Jerry just slap at the bass. Uh, you know, and so maybe many of you, the expectation was, I wonder if the guy who preached last week is going to be back this week. Uh, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, everyone came in here with expectations. And this man brought his son with a lot of expectations. Did you see what the text says? The text doesn't say, I brought him to your disciples. It doesn't say that. Did you pay attention to the language here? He says what? I brought him to you. 
I came to see Jesus. I came to see Jesus. I heard you could do miracle after miracle. I heard story after story. And here I am. I brought my son all the way here. We don't know where he came from. But you can imagine here that he probably came pretty good distance. He's desperate here for something. And he came looking for God and God wasn't there. He said, I came looking for you and you were not here. And not only you were not here, but I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do anything. They were not able. They were not able. If you ever wanted to highlight a verse in the Bible, I want you to remember that phrase, none of us are able. How a sobering statement is that in the American church today? I am not able, you are not able, we are not able. I can promise you, some of you, you're putting hopes in all the wrong things, saying, well, they're able to help me. I promise you, none of us are able. Because if I were to, once again, ask you your expectations of the text, you probably would say the story is about Jesus healing this young boy. And that's not the main, main point of the story. The main point of the story is not the man, is not the child, but the disciples are the main point of the story. Why? Because the story begins and ends with a conversation of building around these men. These men are not able and they fall short, but praise be to God, they're following somebody who never falls short. And that's a critical point here. Because look what Jesus says. Oh, faithless generation, how long... Am I, able, am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Bring this boy to me and I'll fix the situation. Don't you draw great comfort knowing that when we are not able, he is able. Don't you grow comfort knowing that when you're at the end of the rope, Christ is not at the end of his rope. Don't you draw comfort from knowing that the God we serve, his hands are never full, his eyes are never heavy, his back is never strained, his resources are never lacking? Isn't that great to know we serve a God like that? But I wonder how many of us, we serve a God like that, but we are more concerned, my first number point here, we are more concerned with winning arguments than winning souls. I wonder how many times for you and for me, I'm preaching to myself here, we get so caught up maybe in theological frameworks, we get so caught up in all these other things, we get so caught up in what I call second and third tier things, we forget about the main thing. And what is the main thing, ladies and gentlemen? The main thing is the gospel. The main thing is the gospel. Let me tell you something, the way our church looks is not the main thing. As far as, uh, our, as, far as our aesthetics, right? From the pew color to even our daggum green carpet, right? At the end of the day, it's not about what our church looks like. It's not even about what our worship sounds like. Some of you might have thought, man, we started off singing this morning, I didn't really care for that hymn. But when they got to the goodness of God, I was thinking, that's me! I want to sing about that. But I want to remind you of this very sobering fact this morning, we're not singing for you. We're not singing for you to check a box and say, that's my spiritual preference. You know, some of you might have thought, I wish Kayla would have ran across the stage a few more times. Back and forth from the drums to the piano. She just needs to get like a harmonica. Donnie starts, uh, you know what I mean? While she does everything else. Crazy talented, right? But at the end of the day, are we more concerned with winning arguments than we are for winning souls? Are we more concerned for that? Because I'll tell you what I have not ever seen. I've never seen somebody on a Facebook thread where all of us don't comment, but we read the comments. Can I testify to that? 
You see the big argument, you're thinking, 45 comments. Let's just see what's there. And before you know it, you're down the rabbit trail eating popcorn, thinking, this is great. Uh, And all the while, you're thinking, this is bad, bad. But I've never seen somebody at the bottom of that argument pool, all of a sudden, in bold letters, you're right, I was wrong, thanks for clarifying on social media. (laughs) Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. Because I've wanted to argue people. I want to argue with maybe a sweet old lady that shares Obi-Wan Kenobi and says, if you believe in Jesus, you'll share this. I've wanted to argue with people that said, you know, if you want to be blessed beyond measure, share this with the seven of your best friends. I'm thinking, that's not how it works, Linda. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, because I want to argue with those people, but at the end of the day, it won't get me anywhere. Because we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing that should be the main thing? It is the gospel. Guys, there are people dying at this moment going to hell. And the church is arguing over breadcrumbs when we have the bread of life. The church is arguing and fighting for all the wrong things. Now do not get me wrong here. Do not misinterpret what I'm trying to say. We have certain things we have to hold on to firmly. And there are certain things that I will argue with you about. Pastor Nick, what are those things you argue with somebody about? When it's biblical, I will argue biblical things all day long. If you say something is not a sin, that the Bible calls a sin, you're what's known as a liar. And at the end of the day, there are some things we church, the church has to stand firm on. There are doctrinal things that we have to stand firm on. But things that are not major doctrinal things that we should not argue about. I'll give you an example that gets a lot of people all out of Watts, and it happened to me when I was a kid as well, like dress code in church. That's something that gets people all crazy these days. Things like the Lord's Supper, should you have open communion? Should you have closed communion? Should you have stale crackers or really good bread? I'm telling you, there's things like that. I went to a Baptist church, I'm not going to lie, and I'm not going to say the name of the church, where I went to a church and there was a seat cushion in this woman's seat that said, Thou shalt not steal. She had a seat cushion in her seat. And if you would have went and sat in that seat, she'd be like, this seat's taken. She would have, yeah, you can't sit here. You got to go somewhere else. That's a silly thing. But at the end of the day, sometimes we get more worried about winning arguments than we do about winning souls. The disciples are arguing with the priest, and there's this guy here. He's got a need. He says, I here to see Jesus. What if they would have said, whenever the priest started arguing, says, well, you know, he's got this demon for that reason, and this is why he can't do it. Well, what if they just said, the man's coming down. And when the man comes down, you're going to figure out the answers. You're going to figure out what's going on. But until the man comes down, we're just going to sit here in silence and look at each other. Because I don't know what the man's going to do when he comes down, but he's going to do something. Because let me humble you real quick. God doesn't need you to rescue him. God doesn't need you to defend him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about the word of God. He says like this. He says, you know, many people forget that the word of God is like a lion in a cage. All you have to do is let it out. How true that statement is. All you have to do is just let it out. God will defend himself. God will rescue himself. God will take care of himself. Let's pick up in the story here in verse number 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, I love this, the demon is the only one who really recognizes who Jesus is, right? The demon saw him, and immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And you can almost read into the text the emotions of the dad here from childhood. 
And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Can we just pause for a second and think about this for a minute? Because if you've ever had children, you get this. You get how hard it is to keep kids safe when you have small kids. You get how, I mean, you really do. Example there, amen. Uh, at the end of the day, you know how hard it is to keep kids safe. Just to give you an idea, I walk in our nursery this morning. Amanda's going to love this. She's in the nursery working. And we've got some rambunctious boys here at our church, which means they're just boys, right? And some of you might be thinking, you, don't, you know, you, don't, you, you have to teach kids violence. If you leave your boy in the yard with a stick for three minutes, he'll have a bazooka. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, at the end of the day, that's just how boys work. They're just boys. And I walk in the nursery this morning, Donnie. I was just going around, checking on Esther and seeing what Rowan and Lincoln and Payton were doing. And I walk in and Noah is scaling the shelves in the nursery. Rowan is, yeah. He's scaling. And I, I come in, he turns and looks at me and says, uh-oh. And I said, boy, what are you doing? Get down from there. And he was like, I'm sorry. You know, and he climbed back down because I remember this. I remember that so this morning. Why? Because four or five years ago, whenever Hunter put those shelves in, he says, we need to anchor them to the wall. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, because some of you boys going to climb. And it was like the Lord was like, ha-ha. Because uh, that's exactly what happened. Because boys are going to be boys. It is extremely hard just to keep your kids safe. Like, there's nothing in the world faster than a toddler with something in their mouth they ain't supposed to have. Like, they'll grab it, pop it in, you'll be like, what do you got in your mouth? Boom, they're gone. There's nothing worse in the house when it's quiet. Because when it's quiet, you know it's not all peace and tranquility. You know somewhere there's tiny hands doing something they're not supposed to be doing. And you walk around the corner, and they've taken their own feces and made finger paints with it. This is what they do. Some of you thinking, I can't believe you said that. That's parenting. Because I don't know about you, but we're at that stage where is it chocolate or poop? You got to smell every time. You don't know. You don't know what it is. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You can feel compassion for this dad here. Not only does he have a child, but he's a child who has a demon spirit who is throwing him everywhere. It says what? He throws him into the fire. He throws him into the water. It wants to destroy my son. Look what happens here. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That's a very, very powerful statement. I, I think many of you skipped over like I did the first couple times I read it. Did you pay attention to the language the Father uses? Look, what, look again at the text. Look again what it says. If you can, have compassion on us and help us. That's a weird statement. Because he doesn't say, have compassion on my son and help my son. He doesn't say that. Look what he says. He says, have compassion on us. Have compassion on us and help us. Here is the sad reality. Look at me here. Look at me here. If you don't hear anything else I say to you today, you've got to hear this. Our demons and our sins affect way more than you and yourself personally. The poor decisions you make in life, either the sins of someone sinning against you or, some, or you sinning against someone else, I can promise you every bad thing in your life has happened because somebody sinned or you sinned or the world we live in is just broken with sin. That's why every bad thing happens. And the sad truth of it is, 
whenever you make dumb decisions, whenever you sin selfishly, whenever you allow yourself to be pulled away by temptation and you give in to it, whenever that happens, you damage and hurt more than just you. And that's what's so deceiving about sin. That's so deceiving about the enemy. The enemy always whispers, this isn't going to hurt anybody. Nobody's ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to care. But I want to promise you every single time, what most of the time keeps me from doing something stupid and dumb is the hurt I'm going to cause my family. Is the hurt I'm going to cause my family. I was reading a book the other day about a pastor. He said, how do you fight against temptation? And in this interview process, the pastor said he takes... In his prayer room, he has like a closet in his house and is underneath his uh, clothes. And he says, in my prayer room, I have newspaper clippings along the wall. And some of you are thinking, that's a weird thing. It's not his kids' uh, sports. It's not, you know, the stock market. It's not any of those things. not his achievements, not trophies. He said, in his prayer closet, he has newspaper clippings of celebrity pastors and maybe even local pastors that have moral, moral failures. And he has those clippings in his prayer room, looking at them to remind himself that if I fail, it hurts way more than just me. And he said very powerfully, he said, there's one photo I have of the pastor admitting to a moral failure and behind him his wife. And he says that her, her face was burned into my soul that I never wanted my wife to look like his wife looked on that day. Because when you sin, whenever... You give in to what the demons are luring you to try to do. Guess what? You damage not only yourself, but you damage other people. And sin always, always, always costs you more than you want to pay, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and will hurt you more than you can fathom. It always does it. It always takes more and more and more, and it never, ever is satisfied. So the, the dad's language there, once again, I want to read that to you. Have compassion on us. Help us. Look what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for everyone who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I've never seen anybody with that verse tattooed on them. Never seen anybody say, man, that's my life verse. Mark chapter 9, baby, verse number 24, help my unbelief, because I promise you that's all of us. I wonder how many times on Sunday we come in here singing, I will trust in the goodness of God. Then on Tuesday we're like, God, where are you at? God, where are you at? Because every day that should be part of our prayer, right? God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, give me faith to believe what you say. God, truly, truly, do something in me where I truly believe what you're telling me. And Jesus saw that the crowd coming, running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Let me tell you something, church. Let me tell you this. The power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin is still here. I think this is a big theological point. Many Christians get confused. They're saying like, hey, if I'm saved, if I have God's Spirit living inside of me, then why in the world do I still sin? Because the presence of sin is still in us. The presence of sin is still all around us. You might say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Nick? Once again, I don't think many of you, you have a very shallow belief when it comes to sin and how decaying it really is. 
the Genesis account tells us not only when we sin, when Adam and Eve sin, not only did sin enter into them, but sin entered into the cosmos. So everything in all of the universe was broken, was cracked, was shifted. To use the theological language that Paul uses in Romans, he says the whole earth is groaning. The same words of like childbirth is what it means. is groaning because the world longs to be perfect and holy like God made it to be. To quote C.S. Lewis, he says that everything we see on this side of eternity is a shadow of what it once was supposed to be. Everything. So you ever see a sunrise? Say, man, that sunrise is gorgeous. It's a shadow of what it's supposed to be because even the sun itself has been tainted by our sin. So we are constantly living in the presence of sin. This is why we have things like cancer. This is why we have things like, you know, think about pollution. You have all these things going on around us. I promise you, everything you see is either a byproduct of your sin or my sin or somebody else's sins or generational sins. That sin has infected every molecule in every part of our universe. And so because of this, guess what, though? I've got good news. The gospel tells us that the power of sin has been broken. That would break you out in revival. Because what do I mean by the power of sin has been broken? Before you met Christ, you were sin's slave, the Bible says. Whenever sin told you to do something, you automatically obeyed. You gave into it. You did whatever felt good, no matter who it hurt, no matter what it cost. You did what you wanted to do because you were God in your eyes, right? But after you're saved, after you've been redeemed, after you've been bought with the price, after God's Spirit fills you, the Holy Spirit supernaturally, church, gives us the ability through the power of the Spirit to say no to sin. To say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. No, I've been set free. My identity no longer is a sinner on my way to hell. No, my identity is I'm a child of the one true king, heaven bound in glory stepping. At the end of the day, we are no longer giving in to the power of sin because we have the power of God's Spirit. And so this is why the Bible says whenever we submit to sin, we're going against our very nature. Because we're submitting back to the old power instead of living in the power of the new power. But the presence of sin is very much here. Pastor Nick, how do, I, how do you know the presence of sin is really here? Go Funeral. It doesn't matter how many times you go to the funeral home. A part of you, every time you walk in, whether it's the old or the young... Every time you walk into that place, you know somewhere in your soul, it kind of twists you and says, this isn't right. This isn't supposed to be this way. Because we know at the end of the day, we were not made for that. We were made for so much more. So the presence of sin is still very much here, but the power of sin has been broken. But that's not even the main point of the story. Pastor, what do you mean it's not the main point of the story? That's the main driving point of the text. It's really not, like I said before. Because the disciples are at the beginning, and the disciples are at the end. And this story is in the middle because Jesus is really trying to teach his disciples something. How do I know this? Because look what the text ends with. Verse number 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Once again, I've highlighted this every single time this happens in Mark because I want you to know there are insiders and there are outsiders. Mark is always drawing this. There are people who are close to Jesus, and then there are people who are close to Jesus. The crowd was close to Jesus, 
physically, but they were far from Jesus spiritually. The disciples were close to Jesus physically, and they were far from Jesus spiritually as well. As, you see what I'm saying? At the end of the day, the disciples are not getting what Jesus is saying to them. Because look what happens. They're in the house. They're in private. Look what they say. Look at this church. Once again, I think just slowing down and reading the text is one of the biggest biblical disciplines you can have. Instead of going through your quiet time thinking, I've got five minutes, let's burn through these bad boys. Is slowing down and reading the text word by word, praying that God will reveal things to you. Look what it says here. Why could we not cast it out? That plural meaning there changes the entire story. Why could we not drive out this demon? You know how I can promise you we will always fail when we do things in our own power. Your marriage will fail if you're fully relying on yourself. Your marriage will fail. You will fail in parenting if you're fully relying on yourself. Saying, I just got to have enough willpower. I got to do this. I got to do that. I promise you, brother. I promise you, sister. You will fail, fail, fail. Because in our pride, we think we can handle everything. In our arrogance, we think that I, my hands are big enough. I can hold everything together. And pride is sneaky, isn't it? So, so sneaky. But look at the disciples here. It kind of reveals their pride. It says, why could we not do this? You see, they wanted the power. They wanted the power that they thought, hey, Jesus is on the mountain, but guess what? We still hear y'all. We're going to put ourselves on a healing clinic, Don, is what they said. So they maybe thought, hey, Jesus is on the mountain, but we down here, we're his disciples. We've got the power, and we're going to, we're going to drive out some demons, right? Y'all, y'all come on in. And this dad comes up with a real legit case, and the disciples like, we can do nothing for you. You know, this is, this is bad. This is bad off. And then the scribes are arguing with them, and they're arguing with everybody. And the whole, once again, the whole crisis would have been diverted if they would have realized it's not what we can do for you, it's what Christ can do for you. And I know some of you don't get this, but let me give it to you the best way I know how. Many of you maybe even sometimes look at someone who sings on this stage or look at someone who sings at a concert, or look at somebody who preach, maybe on this stage or somewhere else, and you might think, man, they are such a good pastor, man, they're such a good preacher, man, they're such a good singer. And I want to promise you the, the cold, hard, stone-cold truth. It is not their ability, it's what God chooses to do through that individual that we should give honor and praise to. Because at the end of the day, all you're seeing on the stage or any stage you go to, it is the conduit that the electric electrical power of the Holy Spirit is choosing to use to accomplish His glory and His goal. And if the conduit doesn't want to submit, guess what? He'll go get another one. He'll go get another one. Some of you are thinking, well, I, I won't serve God. Guess what? He'll get somebody else. He'll get somebody else. But you know what God longs to do because He's such a good dad? He wants us to be a part of it. He wants us to be a part of His story. He wants us to be a part of what he's doing. He wants us to be a part of everything he's trying to accomplish. But we can't do it in our own power. Because look what Jesus tells them. And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let me close this last point to get you to really think about this. Are we more concerned with techniques than we are with faithfulness? 
are we more concerned with techniques than we are faithfulness? Because you know what's important? Just being faithful. Just being faithful. And what I mean by techniques, let me tell you something. Church culture is very much like some of the most other Americanized cultures where it's consumerism, where you come and get something, you automatically come and get something, you come and get something, come and get something, come and get something, you don't contribute anything, you just come and get, come and get, come and get, come and get. When at the end of the day, look at me here very carefully, at the end of the day, are we more concerned with what's going to get people here or are we more concerned with what's going to keep people here? Let me promise you, there are a lot of things that will get people to church, but there's only one thing that keeps people in church. And it's not a youth program. It's not modern worship. It's not a young pastor with two and a half kids. You have two and a half, you're too much, right? No, the only thing that keeps people faithful is God's faithfulness. Is God pulling at people's hearts, God changing people, God literally transforming them from the inside out. And you might be like, Pastor Nick, what if people don't stay faithful? Then I'll tell you what the text tells us. The text tells us that they were never faithful to begin with. Because the promise of Scripture is this, he who began a good work in you, he'll finish it. He didn't halfway do nothing. God says, if he starts it, he says, I'm going to finish it. He who began a good work, and he will finish it until Christ comes back. Oh, church, that we will believe that. Oh, church, we will believe that the power to save is not in our worship style, is not in our uh, preaching, is not in our style of preaching, but the power to save is in God's Word. God's Word is what brings people to Himself. God's Word is what changes people. God's Word is what formed the very earth you see. It is God's Word, church, that can do the impossible. It's God's Word. But we get so tied up in techniques that we forget just to be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the little things. What are those little things? Those are those spiritual disciplines we talked about this summer. About us praying, meditating on Scripture, right? About us fasting, about us taking a day off, a Sabbath, right? Doing those spiritual disciplines, doing those small things that you just be faithful in the little things, and guess what? God turns them into big things. It's how it works. But oh, that we've been found faithful. And I know in this day and age, it's hard to be faithful. It's so hard to be faithful even at your job, right? It's hard to be faithful maybe with your, with your, your kids every day because it's every day. You've got to be faithful with them. You've got to get them to do the same thing over and over again. But before long, time just goes by. And I'll be honest with you, if you asked your kids when they got older, if you remember the big massive trips where you know, mom and dad were never around, but they took you to Disney World. Or if, they, if you ask them, they remember like every Saturday morning you ate pancakes. I promise you what they'll remember is the pancakes. Because kids really do remember the faithfulness. They don't remember the massive big things. They remember just the faithfulness, love, and compassion, and care of mom and dad for years. So won't we be faithful, mom and dad? Won't we be faithful, husband and wife? Single in here, my thing, and I, I'm, I'm young and single, and I'm ready to mingle. Just be faithful in your singleness. Because singleness is a gift, the Bible says. It is. When you're, when you're married, you got, you got, the, the Bible says a man's divided. He's got to serve the Lord and serve his spouse. 
When you got kids, you got to serve the Lord, your spouse, and your kids. But when you're single, you just got to serve the Lord. All you got to do is serve the Lord. That's it. Nobody else to serve but the Lord and loving your neighbor well. So be faithful wherever you're at, knowing, knowing that God is able to do far more than you could ever dream or imagine. God is able, church. So maybe you're here this morning as we begin to close, and you don't think God is able. You think with your face, but in your heart, you don't think God is able. Maybe your prayer needs to be like this desperate father. And maybe you need to be honest with God and come up here and pray and say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think we can all pray that prayer this morning. Won't you come? Won't you come? God, I believe, but help my unbelief.